Good morning. It's so wonderful to be with you. I can't believe after all these years, this is my first time in George. Um, but it's, it's a slightly weird experience because, well, this is my first time here. I know so many of you. <laughs> There's so many of you that we've crossed paths or been in the same congregation. Some of us have known each other a long time, like to Durbanville days or... Um, but just as I was pondering that, I, I really felt the Lord say something to me that he's gathered people here from many places in order that he can then send you out to many places. And I really believe God is going to begin to use you guys, not just in George, but in, in many places around the world. Um, so get your passports ready. Uh, COVID seems to be declining and international borders are opening, so keep your eyes and ears open for outreaches and trips uh, around South Africa and the world. We're planning a trip to Brazil in Easter, and everyone says, trips with me to Brazil are the most fun outreaches that there are. Okay, so, uh, but be prepared for God to use you in strange and wonderful places. And I, I've got a message for you this morning, and uh, just to encourage you, because as Chad said, I do think you are a congregation who, who knows how to worship. It's, it's wonderful to see a worship team that's a real worship team and not people just singing songs. One of, one of my frustrations is sometimes when you see a worship team and they're singing the songs, but they're not worshiping. And, and just to demonstrate that you actually... Uh, leading the people in worship by example was fantastic, so that's wonderful. And I've got a word for the Lord for you this morning, and that is, you are peculiar. <laughs> you are peculiar. <laughs> oh, I know it. I know it. <laughs> it should be no surprise that you're peculiar because people say you catch what your leader's got. <laughs> but why do I say that you're peculiar? Because the Bible says so, at least in slightly older English. If we look at the uh, King James Version, um, when God speaks to his people, he says this. In, uh, in Deuteronomy, and I, wa I won't do it in old King James with the those and these and whatever, because people don't understand those and these and whatever. But in kind of New King James Version, English, for you are a holy people unto the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a peculiar people to himself above all the nations that are upon the earth. And that was God uh, establishing his covenant with Israel. But then in the New Testament, Peter writing to the church, he wants the church to know, he wants you to know that you are God's covenant people. And so he uses the same language. He, he, he borrows that language from Deuteronomy and he says, God's saying it to you now as his covenant people. And in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a peculiar people, that you should show forth 
the praises of he who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you are strange, strange people. You're a peculiar people. Now, what we've got to do first is we've got to understand what does that word peculiar mean? Okay? Because language, words change meaning over time. And peculiar can mean different things. It can mean chosen. And many uh, modern translations say that. You are chosen by God. And even that's quite an awesome thing to think of, eh? That God chose you. And he didn't choose you because you were so beautiful and talented and amazing and valuable. You know, I, I hear preachers say, you know, Jesus died for you because you were so valuable. No. Jesus died for you while you were still worthless. You became valuable because he died for you. You've got to get it the right way around. We are valuable to God because of what Jesus did, not because of who we are in ourselves. And that's an incredible thing, that God can take something worthless and make it priceless. So you're chosen. Peculiar also means separate from. And it, there you've got the concept of holiness. And holiness, I wanted a men's meeting. I, I was telling the story of uh, my daughter when she was young. She had a friend. And this friend of hers never, had never sworn, never lied, never stolen, never done anything wrong. But she wasn't going to heaven. You know why? She was boring. No. <laughs> The reason was, she was a Barbie doll. A Barbie doll's never done anything wrong, but it's not holy. See, we think holiness often not. Sometimes I think people think of holiness as, well, if I don't do bad things, that makes me holy. No, it just makes you boring. <laughs> See, holiness isn't made up of what we don't do. Holiness is an attribute of God that he places in you. And what we do is we want to be morally good because he's made us holy. We don't become holy by doing what is morally good. Because if you think you can become holy by doing morally good, you're always going to fail. So I'll say, I'm going to be the perfect Christian today, and I've always failed by lunchtime. But I, I'm holy. Not because of what I do or don't do, but because of who he is, and he's separated me, and holiness speaks of separation. I've been separated, called out for a purpose. And that purpose is to reveal the glory of God. That's why I try and live a life that's pleasing to him. That's why I try and live a moral life, because I've been made holy, and I want to reflect him well. But I understand holiness isn't made up of what I do. It's who I am in him. And then peculiar also does mean strange or unusual. Different to what is expected. And as the people of God, let me tell you, you are strange. You are weird. You really are. I, I think when you've been saved a while, you forget just how weird you are. 
But then we come into church and some of us are like, I don't want to raise my hands because I'll, I'll feel strange. Or I don't want to speak in tongues because that's weird. Or I don't want to dance, you know, because like, I don't want to make a fool of myself. You're in this building on a beautiful Sunday morning listening to some strange Roynek talk about a man who lived 2,000 years ago. The world already thinks you're strange. <laughs> they already think you've lost your mind. So don't do it half cock. Go all the way. <laughs> if you're going to be strange, be really strange. <laughs> do you understand what I mean? And, and you know, the, the story of David with, with, with his wife, you know, and he's, he's dancing and spinning around in his underwear like Chad loves to do. And his wife rebukes him. No. <laughs> like Nicolene never does. <laughs> David's wife rebukes him and says, you've made a fool of yourself. Yeah? And do you know what happens to her? Now, when God's judgment comes on people in Scripture, it comes on people in many ways. Uh, sometimes the ground opens up and swallows people. Sometimes there's leprosy. Sometimes there's... What, kept, what happened to David's wife is she became barren. And I think God chose that particular judgment in order to paint us a picture. That if we want to be fruitful as a people, we've got to be an extravagant people willing to be seen as strange. Willing to be undignified. And, and David's response is, you think I looked weird? You ain't seen nothing yet. I can be a lot weirder than this. I think you, most of you think Chad's weird. He's holding himself back. <laughs> he can get a whole lot weirder. <laughs> he can get a whole lot stranger. <laughs> Amen, yes. <laughs> oh, Dad, you're so embarrassing. <laughs> one, one of the favorite things I saw on, on the internet was a video. Some father who, whose son had said, or whose daughter had said, you're so embarrassing, Dad. When you drop me off at school, can you, can you kind of drop me off down the road and, and whatever? So the next day, he rocked up in a speedo. <laughs> He's like, you think I'm embarrassing? I'll show you what's embarrassing. And we're laughing, but, the, but it's, it's, it's a genuine question. Is, are you willing to lose your reputation? Are you willing to be peculiar? Are you willing to be strange? Now, I, when I'm talking strange, I mean there's strange and then there's strange, strange. Yeah, we don't have to be strange for the sake of it. You know, we don't have to be like, there's some people and it's like, hmm. There's, I'm like strange like Jesus. We are not part of this world. As my, one of my heroes, Larry Norman, says, I'm only visiting this planet. I'm just passing through. So my, you know, every, every nation, every people group has its own culture. And, and the cultural practices of one group seem strange to an outside group, right? Well, we're part of a kingdom and a culture that doesn't belong to this world. So the people of this world should see our practices as something different. 
If you're not different, if you fit into the world, can I suggest you're doing something wrong? You know, there's an old saying, wherever you go, preach the gospel, and if you must, use words. And I hate that quote. You know why I hate that quote? Because I don't know anybody who got saved without words. We are meant to share the gospel. But the truth, what, what that quote is trying to say is people should be able to see Jesus in you because you're different. People should see a difference in you. And some people, to some people, that difference will be life. And to others, it'll be death. So they may love you or they may hate you, but they should never be able to ignore you. We should be anything but bland. We should be anything but ordinary. You are a peculiar, extraordinary people. We're called to be a people who carry the presence of God. In Chronicles 1 Chronicles 14 to 16, we have the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And often preachers preach about the ox cart story. And I, but I, I want to I preach, just share something about when the priest did it right. See, David understood that the Ark of the Covenant represented something of the, it represented the presence of God. And something of the power of God. Not primarily the power, but the power came out of the presence. Yeah? Too often, some Christians want the power of God without the presence. I'd rather have the presence, not the power. Moses said something incredibly profound when he was talking to God. And it was after the golden calf incident and, and, and God saying, I'll lead you in the, into the promised land and I'll send an, and And Moses said, Unless you go with us, I don't want to go. And, and what he was actually saying was, I'd rather live in the desert with your presence than in the promised land without it. I'd rather have your presence here than supernatural provision and, and, and defeating enemies and overcoming cities. I'd rather have your presence. I think sometimes we get it wrong. Sometimes I think, if we're truly honest, we'd, we'd like to see his power more than his presence. But his power comes out of his presence. And so the Ark of the Covenant represents his presence. And David is the king, as the leader. He recognizes that the Ark of the Covenant, that's been, it's been returned from the Philistines, but it's been lying in somebody's house for years on the outskirts of the nation. And he says, no, I want to bring the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, from the outskirts to the center. That should be our heart. Is the presence of God something that's on the outskirts of our lives? That's something really nice to visit on a Sunday and a Wednesday? Or is it something that we carry in the center of, us, of our lives? Is, it, is, is the presence of God what we revolve our lives around? You go, well, you know, that's weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's strange. It's peculiar. To seek first the kingdom of God. I've learned in my life, the job that I do, does it serve the 
purposes of God? Then what, the house that I buy, does it serve the purposes of God? How many kids to have? I've got two beautiful girls. My wife wanted a third. I said, no. I said, if we have a third, it will make, make it harder for us to serve God. I'm not saying having a third child is a sin. Okay? Having a third child may be serving the purposes of God. Having a sixth child may be serving the purposes of God. Third children are, the, are special. <laughs> but you understand what I'm saying? It's not, a, not about, it's like, how do I serve God and put the purposes of God first in my life? The car that I drive, the friends that I have, the TV that I watch, Netflix. Netflix is not a sin, necessarily, but it may be. And so, are we a people who want the, the, the presence of God and the purposes of God to be central to our existence? That might mean that your priorities seem really weird. When, when I was um, a sales manager, um, my directors came to me and they said, we want to make you a director of the company. And I said, I can't. They said, why not? I said, you want to make me a director as a way of, of, of um, gaining my loyalty and my long-term commitment to the, to the company? I said, I can't because this company isn't my priority in life. The kingdom of God is. And then when eventually I ended in my notice and, and I said, I'm going working for the church, they were saying, well, can we increase your salary? You know, what can we do to keep you? I said, there's nothing. You, it's not about salary. I'm, I'm going working for way less than I'm on now. Because money's not what I live for. And they're scratching their heads trying to figure out what on earth would cause a guy to, to take a 50% cut in income to work twice as long. And as I often joke, the pay sucks, but the benefits are out of this world. <laughs> so what are we living for? And do we want the presence of God as the center of our lives, not just the center of our Sundays? And so David, he wants to bring the, the ark, the presence of God, back into the center. Back to where it belongs in its rightful place. And the way to do that is he calls the Levites, he calls the priests, and he says, you carry this on your shoulders. And today, and this is what these scriptures say, you are a kingdom of priests. Today, you are the Levites. And one of your responsibilities as the priests of God is to carry the presence of God on your shoulders and put God and his presence into its proper place. Not just in my life, but in our lives. And each of us, whether you're an elder, a deacon, a saint, whether you've been saved a day, whether you sat at the front or you sat at the back, you are influencing people around you. Every believer is a leader. The only question is, where are you leading people? So in worship, if you're passionately worshiping, it makes it easier for the people around you to passionately worship. If during worship you're busy talking, 
It makes it easier for people to talk instead of worshiping. So you're influencing people around you. you. So the question is, where do you want to lead people? Do you want to lead people more into the presence of God or away from? Do you want to lead people into the purposes of God or away from? When I was a youth leader, I think I mentioned this at the youth conference. When I was a youth leader many moons ago, one of the things I would say is the two most powerful forces in the world are peer pressure and the Holy Spirit. And the second is just about powerful enough to deal with the first. But over the years, I've realized that statement's wrong. In some ways, and hear what I'm saying and what I'm not saying, peer pressure is something that even the Holy Spirit can't overcome sometimes. And that's why Scripture warns us about who we hang out with. Scripture tells us bad company corrupts good character. We become like the people we spend time with. Whether we like it or not, scientists have shown that over time, married couples begin to physically look more like each other. It's true. (laughs) Sorry for you, Nicolene. (laughs) Whereas my wife is getting better looking each day. (laughs) And the reason married couples start to physically resemble each other over time is they have a similar lifestyle, similar diet, whatever, but also because when we're talking to each other, subconsciously we mirror each other. We mirror our expressions. And so our our, our facial muscles, we build the same things. We we, we develop the same expressions. Even without realizing it, you end up imitating the people you're spending time with. You know, when when you were a kid and your parents said, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you... Nine times out of ten, the honest answer is yes, I probably would. (laughs) It's very, very few people who can resist the influence of the people. And that's why Scripture doesn't say, don't worry, you've got the Holy Spirit within you. You're strong enough not to be corrupted. No, it says, be careful who you spend time with. Surround Surround yourself with people who will, who will build your faith. Surround yourself with people who will encourage you. Surround yourself with people who love you enough to kick you when you need it. Because that's the role of a priest. And we are all priests. And I want us to be faithful priests who are helping to take the presence of God and make it central in the lives of each and every one of us. Because we can't do it alone. Do you know why the Levites were chosen to be the priests? This is a scary story. So Levi was, was one of the sons of Jacob, right? And when Jacob was dying, he, he called all his sons and he prophesied over them. And he prophesied over Levi saying, because you're a man of violence, because you, he did something very dodgy, we don't have to go into that, we've not got time. But his, his, his father prophesied over him, you will have no share in the inheritance. You won't get a part of the promised land. And so his identity was one who's somebody who wasn't blessed, who, who, who was cursed, and who wasn't going to get part of the inheritance. Then, as they're traveling through 
the desert, the Israelites, many years later, the descendants of Levi are with Moses. Moses goes up the mountain to speak with God. And while he's up the mountain, the Israelites begin to worship the golden calf. They fall into idolatry. And Moses comes down from the mountain and he begins to rebuke the people who've fallen into idolatry. And he says, those who are for the Lord, come to me. And the Israelite, the Levites come to Moses. And he says, now go through the camp with your swords and kill your brothers, your friends, and your neighbors. And that day, 3,000 were killed. And he said, because you've sided with God, you will be the priests of God. Now, that doesn't mean God wants us all to go around killing people. What that illustrates is they said, we're with God so much that our passion for God, will, we have to obedient, be obedient whatever the cost. And similarly, Jesus in the New Testament says, whoever hates, whoever doesn't hate his father and his mother, his brothers, is not worthy of me. He's not asking you to hate. He's saying, in comparison, your, your zeal and passion for the Lord has got to be so great that if it costs you everything, you'll still be on God's side. And the Levites do that. And then God says to them, okay, you were told you would not, you would not get a part of the inheritance of the land. And he says, instead, I will become your inheritance. And God turns that curse into a blessing. He turns condemnation into a commission. And that is the role of the Levites. And the Levites carry the presence of God. The, the Levites facilitate worship. And that's how God wants us to be. He wants us to be like the Levites. I'm on God's side. I don't care about the opinions of men. I don't care about the traditions of men. I don't care about the, the, the insults of men. Now, when people tell me they don't care what people think, they're lying. Right? We all, anybody here genuinely doesn't care what people think about you. No, of course you do. Okay? It's normal. We all want to be loved. We all want to be connected. We all want to be liked. But it's this. I do not care about you enough to cause me to compromise on what God thinks of me. I would rather please God and upset you Are we on? Yes. It's not always possible to please both man and God. I'd rather you like me. It's nicer if you like me. But I'd rather be liked by God and hated by you than the other way around. And so, I want to be a carrier of the presence of God. I want to be a priest to God. I want to be a peculiar person. And you're all saying, yeah, you got that right, Mike. You are peculiar. So what does it mean to be a priest of God? What, what must our lives look like? And I, I just want to give three factors that we should consider of what this priesthood of the New Testament, this priesthood of Jesus should look like. 
And the first is, it's a God-centered life, not a man-centered life. Our theology should be a theology, not a meology. Many, many people, especially if you listen to uh, progressive Christians, liberal Christians, you know, the arguments are always, but why would God judge me? How can judge God do this to people? And it's a person-centered ideology. No, no, God does not answer to man. Man is not the center of the universe. When I went to Israel, it's funny, at the, at the um, Church of the Holy Sepulchre, I think it is, uh, there's one spot there, and they've put, a, they've put like a, um, an inlay into the floor, and it's where they considered the center of the universe to be at one time. And so I stood on it and went, look at last, I really am the center of the universe. <laughs> it doesn't revolve around us, it, devol- it revolves around God. And you know the difference between a theology and a meology? I've often used this illustration. A dog has a theology and a cat has a meology or a meology. And this is how it works. A dog thinks like this. You feed me, you love me, you take me for walks, you give me a home. You must be my owner. A cat thinks like this. You feed me, you look after me, you give me a home. I must be a cat. <laughs> like, like so, some people pray like, God, you better come through for me because I am so... No. He doesn't, he doesn't owe us anything. And our lives must be God-centered, not man-centered. You know, one of the things that amazed me when I first came to South Africa is just how much emphasis people placed on school sports. This comes from somebody who wasn't in any school teams, and I didn't spend a second longer in school than I absolutely had to. I wasn't going to go and watch and support a school team because I couldn't care less if they won or lost. And I came here and it's like, parents, and I'm not saying this is wrong, but it might be, parents invest huge amounts of money and time and, and energy and emotion into a kid's sporting activities and completely neglect spiritual activities. What does it matter if your son becomes a springbok and loses the Lord? Actually, Scripture says that, not me. It doesn't use the word springbok. It says, what if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? What profit is there in it? Now, I'm all for supporting your kid's activities, but is your kid the center of your world or is God the center of your world? I remember once Andrew asking me to relocate from Durbanville to Mount Boss just after I bought a house, and my kids were in school, grade one and grade three. And I was praying to the Lord. I said, Lord, it's fine that I will move, and I'll uproot myself again for about the 12th time in 10 years. I don't mind doing that. I'll do anything, but it's not fair on my kids. How can I do this to my kids? And the Lord spoke to me so clearly. He said, why do you do it? I said, because I've learned to put your kingdom first. He said, why? I said, because if I put your kingdom first, you provide all I need. 
you promised me if I build your house, you'll build my house. He said, that's right. He said, so when do you want your kids to learn that principle? When they're 18? And I realize, not just to say kids were moving, but to sit down with my kids and lead them through it so that the move, they could take ownership and they could say, we are doing this for Jesus. Oh, I can't do that. What will they do with my kid, for my kids? It might teach your kids the beauty of sacrificing for Jesus. It might teach your kids that they're not the center of the universe. And I'm picking on kids as an example, but it could be your career. It could be your house, your car. But we need to live God-centered lives not man-centered lives. And that means we need to focus on him, not ourselves. On his needs, not our needs. His desires, not our desires. We need to focus on him, not others. Either their opinions or their faults. You know, there's an older expression that says this. It says, a boar talks about himself. A gossip talks about others, but a really interesting person talks about you. <laughs> uh, if, it, if I'm in a conversation and I'm talking to you about you, you'll think I'm amazing. You don't want me talking about me, and you don't want me gossiping about others. And when it comes to our spirit lives, you know, even in our prayer, how much time are you talking about yourself? How much t- are you talking about others? And how much are you talking to God about God? Worshiping him exalting him in your own eyes. And if you're talking about others, is it to complain or is it to intercede and to bless? So we should be looking to God, not ourselves. We should be looking to God, not to others. And we should be looking to God, not our circumstances. Scripture is clear about this over and over over again. In 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. That's fairly comprehensive, right? Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. In Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. Sometimes, rejoice in the Lord when things are good. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And Paul wrote that from prison. Paul said, I've learned what it is to have much. I've learned what it is to have nothing. And I've learned to rejoice in all circumstances, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not self-effort. It's God, come and give me the strength to rejoice in all circumstances. And that's one of the most perverted scriptures that there is in the Bible. I can do all things. Yeah? He's talking about I can be content in all circumstances. Reminds me of a cartoon where, where there's a guy trying to open a, a pickle jar, and he's really struggling, and he says, I can do all things. 
through Christ who strengthens me. And his wife says, twist the cap, not scripture. <laughs> Romans 5 tells us, rejoice in your suffering because your suffering produces perseverance, your per- perseverance character and character hope and hope that does not disappoint. So I don't rejoice because I'm suffering. Woohoo! I'm in pain again. I'm peculiar, not insane. But I rejoice in my circumstances, knowing that God is bigger than my circumstances, and maybe my circumstances are shaping something in me for eternal glory. So I will not focus on my circumstances. The sun shines just as brightly on a cloudy day as it does on a clear day. The only difference is clouds are in the way. God is still God in the middle of your most difficult circumstances. You've got to see beyond the clouds. I love what Daniel's three friends say to the Nebuchadnezzar when they're told they're going to be killed if they don't bow down. And they say, oh, king, our God is able to save us. And he will, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down. And when we're faced with difficult circumstances, it's, you know what? I'm not going to crumble. I'm not going to bow down to, to the attitudes of this world and the, the attitude of the devil. I'm not going to bow down to those things in the middle of my difficult circumstances because I've got faith that God's going to deliver me. But even if he doesn't, I still won't bow down. Because I'm not focused on my circumstances. I'm focused on him. So a priest needs to have a God-focused life. Second, he needs to have a submitted life. James 4 tells us, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and he will flee. God gives grace to the humble. But he resists the proud. Isn't that a weird thing, that grace is the undeserved favor of God, so you can't earn it? So how do you get more grace if it's not something? You just position yourself in such a place that God will give you more. Not because you deserve it, but you've just opened yourself up to more. You can obtain more grace by being humble. Romans 12. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. Philippians 2, let your attitude be that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, didn't consider equality with God to be grasped, but made himself a servant, emptied himself, made himself nothing, and became obedient, even to death on a cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if there's any other possible way, please, Take this cup away from me, and yet not my will, but your will be done. There's a humility and an obedience there that is required of the children of God. We need to be a people who are submitted in our posture, in our thinking, in our attitudes. And we need in our prayer life, in our worship, and in our service, to be continually submitted to God and to others. 
And then third, a priest needs to have a devoted life. Acts 2.42, which I'm sure you've heard once or twice. They devoted themselves. Now, firstly, nobody else can make you devoted. If I put a gun to your head and say you, will be devo- you won't be devoted, you might be obedient, but you will not be devoted. Devotion can only come out of yourself. And the word for devotion there in Acts 2.42, there's, there's, there's a number of ways you can, you can um, apply it. But the word, the root of the word literally means this, to persevere or move forward under pressure. My devotion is such that I'm going to get to you no matter what obstacles are in the way. And I know that we have, a th- and, and we've got to hold truth's intention, so it's not like we can earn the presence of God, but there is a sense sometimes where there are obstacles in the way to us connecting with God. Maybe our own sinful mindset, our own laziness, our own offenses, whatever it is. And we've got an option. Oh, I can't today. Or nothing's going to stand in my way. I am so devoted. How many of you have been so in love? How's this? When I was at Bible college, I was at Bible college in White River. Everybody know where White River is? Beautiful part of the world. And Chantel, who was my girlfriend at the time, was living in Johannesburg. And sometimes on a Friday afternoon, she'd phone me. She'd say, do you want me to come and pick you up and we'll, we'll spend the weekend together? And she would drive on a Friday after work to White River from Johannesburg. And then I would drive from White River back to Johannesburg. We'd spend Saturday and Sunday together. And then on Sunday afternoon, I would drive us to White River and she'd drive back. About four and a half hours each way. That was 18 hours driving just so we could spend a day and a half together. And then people go, oh, I can't go to church. It's a bit far. It's a bit cold this morning. Like if you're devoted, it doesn't matter how far it is, how cold it is, what the expense is. If you're devoted, you'll get there. Am I right? I remember years ago in Josh Jen, in the early days of Josh Jen, we got up one Sunday and we announced that Chantel was pregnant and there was great rejoicing. And then that week we lost the baby. And the following Sunday we got up and we had to announce, hey, we've lost the baby. I wasn't feeling very happy. And then worship started. And the first song was, you are good, you are good, and your love endures. I wasn't feeling very much like singing, you are good. You know, I was feeling like singing a song like, why, oh God, does this happen to me? (laughs) And in that moment, I realized I had a choice. Is my opinion that God is good dependent on my circumstance? And in our pain, what do we need? In our pain, we need God. So I had to push through the obstacles and the pain and the questions. Because I had questions. God, if you love us, how could this happen? And I still don't, I'm the theologian, I still don't have a theological answer. All I know is when I don't know why, I have to rely on who. So I don't know why things happen, but I know who God is. And so I'm pressing into God. And very quickly. My worship, which started as an act of obedience, was an action of the heart. When you're offended with people, 
When you've sinned during the week, whatever it is, I can't come into God's presence. Whatever it is, it's a lie. You can come into God's presence. If it's sin, be sure of this. When you come into God's presence, he's going to want to deal with it. But that doesn't stop you coming into God's presence. So are you devoted? Or is it a relationship of convenience? Do you love God for who he is or what he can give to you? That's not devotion. We see, you know, you see on articles and newspapers all the time about some young girl who's married to like some 80-year-old dude who's really wealthy. And everyone's like, yeah, we know why you're married to him. I'm not sure you love him so much as his bank account. Is that true? Are we like those young women married? Like, hey, we can get lots out. Are you in this relationship for what you can get out of it? Or for who he is and what you can put into it? Because as a priest, it's about worshiping God for who he is. We need to be a devoted people. I love in David's life, he sins and God's judgment breaks out and people are dying. And he thinks, if I just, if I just present an offering to God, maybe, maybe I can turn back his wrath and maybe I can, I can unlock God's mercy. And so he finds this, this threshing floor where he wants to build an altar. And he goes to the owner and the owner says, oh, you're the king, you can have it for free. And David says, I will not offer to God a sacrifice that costs me nothing. That parcel of land became where the temple was built. And there's a picture there. I'm so devoted to God. I, I don't want to live a life that costs me nothing. I want to live a life that costs me everything. And here's a little secret I've learned. Over the years, I've never sacrificed anything for God, actually. Because I can't outgive him. Whatever I've given him, he's given me something better in return. I've given him finances. He's blessed me financially. I've given him my time. He re- Whatever I've given him. You know, I, however much time you go, oh, I'm spending too much time at church. He's going to give you eternity in, re- in return. I think that's a good return on investment. <laughs> you can't outgive God. And so in your devotion, give him everything. Best investment you'll ever make. And so worship, being a priest, it's a lifestyle. It's not a Sunday thing. It's not a Wednesday thing. And it should cause us to live lives that make us different, that make us peculiar, that make us strange, that causes us sometimes to be rejected and despised, just like Jesus was. but which will cause some people to say, you're not just about words, but this message you have is real. I see the reality of God because I see it in your lives. We need to be a people who commit ourselves to being the priests of our God, worshiping and interceding and living devoted lives. We need to be a people who commit ourselves to seeking the presence of God, making it central to our lives and living out lifestyle of prayer and worship. We need to commit ourselves 
to being a peculiar people. Can we close our eyes? Lord, often I don't understand your ways. And one of the hardest things to understand is that you would choose me. That you would love me. That you would come find me in my sin and my guilt and my shame and my utter uselessness. And you would reach out and say, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to offer you eternal life in my presence and all the blessings that go with being a son. And I'm willing to give it to you if you will only receive. I don't understand that, God. I don't understand why I'm not an object of wrath. It makes no sense to me outside of the little bit of revelation I have of your love and your mercy. And in light of that mercy, God, I want to live a life that is pleasing to you. I want to live a life worthy of the calling. I want to live a life that revolves around you. I want to live a life that is God-centered, not me-centered. I want to live a life where I'm faithful to you regardless of circumstances. And I want to live a life that is devoted to you where I will be constantly moving forward despite any pressure, despite any resistance, despite obstacles. And I thank you that your mercy wasn't a one-time deal, but that your mercies are new every morning and when I regularly fail to live that way, when I sometimes put myself first, when I'm sometimes disobedient, when I sometimes grumble about my circumstances, your mercy is always available. And though you sometimes hide, you don't hide so I can't find you. You hide in such a way that I will find you and the joy of finding you will be so immense. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us into a relationship with you. You allow us into your presence. That you fill these cracked pots, these broken vessels. You choose to fill them with your glory and your presence. How awesome it is. I feel like some of us need to respond to the Lord this morning. That the Lord has been working in your heart as I've been speaking. And you've realized maybe 
his presence hasn't been the center. Maybe you've actually had idols. Not necessarily evil things. Sometimes even good things, but things that have had the wrong priority in your life and have taken priority over God and his presence. Maybe you've been living for yourself. Maybe you've allowed circumstances to dictate your attitudes and your worship and your obedience. And the heart of the Lord is not to rebuke or punish this morning, but to tell you he stands with open arms to receive you. back into his presence and into intimate relationship. You may even be here and you've, you've never previously had relationship with him. And you're saying, these guys are strange. They are peculiar. And that message was weird and I don't even understand half of it. But there's something he's speaking about that my heart desires, which is love and acceptance from God. So whether it be the first time or the thousandth time, the Lord is asking you, just come to him and just pray, Lord, I'm sorry for making other things the center. Today, I want to make you center of my life. I want to be devoted to you. I want to be submitted to you. And I want my life to be focused on you.